Welcome to It's a Good Life podcast, where it's all about helping entrepreneurs think, feel, and do better. Here's your host, Brian Buffini. Top of the morning to you, and welcome to the It's a Good Life podcast. Glad to have you here. Today, we're going to cover part two of the DNA of an entrepreneur. I hope you listen to part one. Some really good stuff in there. We talked about how to be a possibility thinker and how to take calculated risks. And today, I'm going to share really the third wheel in uh, being an entrepreneur and the third element of the DNA of an entrepreneur. And it's about passion. I'm going to talk about how your passion will play. And just because you're passionate, though, doesn't mean you won't make mistakes. You can be fired up and you can be fired up in the wrong way. One of the things I'm going to do today is something a little different. Many of you tune in here because I'm a fellow who's got a few thoughts and ideas from experience and I've done pretty well in life and had very, very successful businesses, dozens of them, in fact, built a nice net worth and successful company and a good brand and all those kinds of great things. But I've also made my share of mistakes. And I thought what I would do today is share from a book I wrote years ago called Taking Care of Business. And I call them my top 10 wall of shame mistakes. And the truth of the matter is they weren't a wall of shame. The truth of the matter is they're why I'm where I am today. And like many things in life, the most difficult things we encounter and overcome are the making of us. I would also tell you that in my experience, we don't learn a lot from success. We learn a lot from setbacks, mistakes, and failures. So I'm going to share a few, and I'm going to share these because Maybe you're in the midst of one of these or more, and I want you to know, hey, it's all good. It's not the end of the world. The real key is how do you learn from it? So here's my top 10 all-time clangers. I came across a man with a new product who was very engaging and insisted his product was so good it would sell itself. Turned out it didn't. And uh, just so you know, when anyone ever says it sells itself, it doesn't. And if you've ever said out of your own mouth, It sells itself. Never say that again. Nothing sells itself. Second mistake, I launched a business without taking into account the financial cost. No budgets, no forecast, just wishful thinking and some quick math. And that one didn't work out so good. Another one, I've ignored the feedback of those I trust when they raised a red flag about a business venture. You know, when you put your plans together, when you have an idea and you're an entrepreneur, you've got to be open to feedback. Now, I've also, on occasion, ignored feedback that said this wouldn't work. I've When I started Buffini and Company 27 years ago, there was a number of people, people close to me said, ah, this is a terrible idea. This isn't going to work. I had a couple of years in consultants from big time consulting companies that this isn't going to work. So you want to take feedback, but you also need to make sure if people are close to you, raise red flags, that you do the work, not to dismiss it, but to actually roll up your sleeves and work through why that red flag is not a red flag for you. And if it is a red flag, then don't move forward until you have it fixed. What do they say? An ounce of preparation is better than a pound of cure. So figure it out up front. I built overly optimistic financial models, which required everything to go right for the business to make a profit. My bride has pointed that out to me years ago. I would come to her and say, well, if this works and this works and this works, well, what if it doesn't work? Well, it will. And so again, what I've learned today is I reduce my forecast and increase my expenses when I go into a business plan. And uh, there's an old phrase, everything takes twice as long and costs twice as much. And uh, it might not be a hard and fast rule, but it's a guideline. And so certainly good to taper your estimates of sales and to increase your 
timelines and increase your expenses. And so you'll have a more realistic number. And then what I like to do is just beat the heck out of it. Beat the heck out of it. Our chief financial officer at Buffini Company, he always comes together with a business plan at the um, beginning of the year with the budgets. And I always come away from those meetings going, we're going to beat those numbers. I've had job openings that I filled with people I knew because it was convenient instead of finding the most qualified person for the job. Uh, Maybe you've made that mistake. In the past, I focused much of my time and energy on building the business's operations and working on processes, which caused me to abdicate the vital roles of sales and marketing in the company someone else. And I just think if you're the entrepreneur, you've always got to be the leader in regards to acquisition. Your mind has always got to be there. That's really one of the keys as an entrepreneur. Another mistake I made was I was so intent on finding the next customer that I forgot to cultivate the relationships I already had. Now, I teach taking care of your past customers. I teach a system of working by referral. Our company helps small business owners increase their businesses. Our average client more than 10x is their business in the first three years, okay? And a lot of people out there in 10x this and 7x that. And more. We actually have been doing it for 27 years. And our average client comes to us making about 35 grand. And within, you know, three years, they're making about 360. And we have many doing far beyond that. But the fact of the matter is, you got to make sure as you're taking a look at this, you don't abdicate the sales and marketing. And I think no matter what, no matter how big your business gets, you are the chief rainmaker. You don't have to do all the sales yourself, but you sure as heck have to have your mind on the sales. You also want to take care of your past customers and you want to take care of your existing customers. And again, for me today, that's probably the core strength of our organization. But again, it's easy to drift. I created a business in an industry I had no prior knowledge of or had little experience in. And so I had to do the -the on-the-job training for that. And again, you can do this. I've done it. There's ways to innovate it. The podcast, I knew nothing about podcasting when we started this. And so you have to learn. But you need to study and research. And as you go, test things out, try things out, and then improve from there. The bottom line is, I think I've shared some of the mistakes I've made, and I've learned from all of them. And the way I viewed them is when I make a mistake, was that was a seminar I went to. Now, what am I going to do with the information? So maybe I've shared some things that you're either in the middle of or you've done. It's like, hey, no big deal. I can tell you this. I went on to build the largest coaching and training company in North America. I can honestly tell you that some of the mistakes that I've made in previous businesses or enterprises are the reason this business is so successful today and the fundamentals are so strong. And so you want to learn from your mistakes. You just don't want to make the critical mistake. You don't want to make a mistake that's going to basically sink your opportunities. And even then, if it does, you get right back on the horse, you learn from it, and you don't make the same mistake twice. General George Patton used to say, I hate paying for the same real estate twice. And in his business of war, you were paying with blood. And so you don't pay for the same real estate twice. If you gave up a lot to go take over a big piece of land or a city or whatever it was in wartime, you don't want to give it back up and start again. And so that's the same for all of us. Here's the third point that we have with regards to the DNA of an entrepreneur, and that is your passion will play. And you've heard of a thing called a passion play. And also in the golf world, they'll say a phrase, somebody hits a ball and it's decent and it's out in the fair. They go, that'll play, that'll play. Well, your passion will play. And I want to talk about that. So I have three points for you today. First of all, are you willing to suffer for what you believe in? Are you willing to suffer for what you believe in? Second, you got to be the believer in chief. And third, you have to transfer your belief to the team and the customers. So 
when we talk about passion, people are, especially younger folks, you know, I love the fact, I mean, the millennials especially are the most maligned generation I think that's ever come along. Very different than baby boomers or Gen Xers. And I think it's been a very, very hard disconnect for people who are Gen Xers and baby boomers to look at millennials. And I, I, I find myself fascinated by the differences and learning from the differences. And there's certainly things I look at and I go, hmm, that's interesting, where I don't particularly think it's great. But I would also tell you that for many millennials, their perspectives are broader. They tend to have a, a bigger picture towards things. And one of the things I hear repeatedly is a sense of purpose and balance. As many millennials, they want to have a sense of purpose about what they do, and they want to have a sense of balance in life. And I go, eh, those are pretty awesome things. Because certainly people of my generation have struggled hard to learn those things. So when we hear about purpose, it often sounds like um, your dream, you know, pursuing your dream and pursuing your goal. And it can sound very wistful. The word passion comes from a Latin word, passio. And passio is the word in Latin for suffering. When people think passion, they think joy. When people think passion, they think love. When people think passion, they think, you know, this dreamlike state of where you're just getting to pursue your passion. And the truth of the matter is, your passion is all those things. Your passion is all those. It's a fire. It's that energy. It's that raison d'etre, as the French say, the reason to exist. It's the reason you get out of bed in the morning. But ultimately, what are you willing to suffer for? You know, it's interesting. I, I'm 27 years in this business. I've made my money. Life is good. I haven't needed to work for a very long time. But I'm more passionate, more fired up, and I probably work more today than I ever have. And I've paid a lot of prices, and I've done a lot of suffering for what I do today. But I'm very, very passionate about it. And I'm willing to suffer for it. I'm willing to go through difficult things. I have been. I've already paid a lot of prices to go through it. For me, the vision I had is to impact and improve the lives of people. Impact and improve the lives of people. And then the application inside that was, hey, and I challenge my company. We want to coach every client like they're the only client we have. I don't care how big we get, how successful we get. We want to coach these folks like they're the only person we have. And that is the application of impact and improve the lives of people, which is the, the mission of Buffini Company. So that's very passionate. We get people, I want to impact people's lives. I want to improve people's lives. And, and in fact, in our company, all the different departments are basically aligned under impact or improvement. So for example, events would be under impact. The podcasting would be under impacting. Our marketing and sales would be under impacting. The improving, that's where our coaching and all our support systems and our contact management systems and all those dynamic, our customer service, that's all into the improvement. So it's impact and improve. That's our mission. That's the formation of everything. And it is very heady stuff, but with that comes a challenge. And you have to be willing to suffer for something. 2019 National University of Singapore study found that entrepreneurial passion actually predicted organizational success. So based on how passionate leadership was about their mission and calling is directly related to how successful an organization would be. And I, I believe that. So passion, it inspires your vision, it fuels your commitment, and it helps you to take risks and be innovative, which is important. So I'll give you an example from my own life. Buffini Company, uh, by 2007, was in the real estate space. We were just coaching realtors at that time. We weren't like we are today, where we have entrepreneurs and people from 47, 48 different industries that we serve. So we had one focus in one industry, 
And we had one product line, which was just coaching. We didn't have all our training programs and all our marketing systems. And um, we were by far the biggest fish in the sea. So along comes this worldwide economic recession centered around real estate, the big short. And this went on for years and years and years. We experienced it in 2007. It wasn't declared a recession until 2008, and it technically didn't end till 2012. We went into this, we had 400 plus employees, and we were losing clients and market share by the day. To give you context, 57% of the people who were in the real estate business left during the recession. And of those that left, ironically, the same number, those that were left were making 57% of what they made. Altogether, the whole math was basically around 84 to 87%, somewhere in there, of the total revenue in the real estate agent space disappeared. Brokerages disappeared. Companies like Prudential that have 50,000 agents disappeared. Huge companies, small companies, eviscerated. We had 27 coaching competitors in real estate at the time. 26 of them disappeared. So we were in that space. And, uh, you know, I had consultants come along. Hey, Brian, you've done well. You're in good shape. You should shut the company down. Now, I got to be candid with you. To be honest with you, I never even considered that. But I had some hard choices to make. And, and one of those hard choices was in order to fund the business, the banks bailed on us, everything bailed on us. I had to liquidate assets at the bottom of the market to put the money back into the company. And I came to my wife and I said, hey, we have all these commercial real estate pieces. We have all these residential real estate pieces. We're probably going to have to liquidate these and the market's down. So we're going to sell them at a discount to take the money to throw it back in the business. Now, again, I don't want to sound too highfalutin, but this is how my bride is wrapped. You know, we first came to the conclusion that this was a calling for us in uh, 1995. So my wife asked me the question, okay, what's changed from 12 years ago? Has God sent out indifferent? And the answer was no. So it was the shortest discussion probably ever in history between a man and his wife on selling a boatload of their assets. And we did. We sold $40 million worth of real estate and took a deep discount on it. Obviously, there were some mortgages involved there and took all the proceeds of the sale, had to pay taxes on some of the proceeds and then put the money into the business. Why? Because it was our passion. It was what we were focused on. There was still a viable business model there. And we did. We had to rebuild the business and reorganize it. And we went through some hard times, went from 400 plus employees down to about 112 and then rebuilt the business and refocused it. But the fact of the matter is, it was our passion. Impacting and improving the lives of people was more important to us than our own economic well-being or our net worth or those kinds of things. And again, I'm not throwing this out casually, and I don't want people to go bankrupt or whatever else over this. I don't want people going into debt and so on and so forth. I'm just saying to you that you will be tested. And in that case, coaching all of you like you're the only client I have was more important to me than owning a bunch of real estate. Uh, Serving people and impacting and improving the lives of people was more important to me than our own net worth and more important to my wife because we were unified together in that passion, in that purpose. So sometimes you're going to be tested. Sam Walton said, if you love your work, you'll be out there every day to trying to do the best you can. Pretty soon, everyone around you will catch the passion from you like a fever. Pierre Amidier said, if you're passionate about something and you work hard, you'll be successful. Steve Jobs said, people with passion can change the world for the better. And you can. I love these entrepreneurial stories. I want to share one with you. His name is Kevin Plank, probably not a household name. He is a billionaire, but you probably don't know his name, but you know his company. 
He was using money he made from selling flowers in college. And then he got a, a combination of business loans and credit cards and his savings. And uh, the newly graduated Plank uh, managed to devise a prototype for a football jersey that absorbed sweat. So he ran his fledgling business out of his grandmother's house in Georgetown, settling on the name Under Armour. He went on to build a phenomenal business, as we would all know. In 1999, he used the company's entire marketing budget on an advertisement in ESPN, the magazine. That was his conviction. This is where he needed to be. And from that ad, NFL teams, college teams, athletes started reaching out to him. And that's what really got the product up and running. He got a million dollars in sales from his 50 grand in advertising budget. Now, the company has since continued to grow into several markets. We know it's today there's 20,000 people working at Under Armour, and it uh, does $5 billion a year in sales. Kevin Plank says a quote that if you listen to episode one of the DNA of an entrepreneur, it will make a lot of sense. It's the most Pollyanna and Freddy Krueger type quote you can have. He said, we were always smart enough to be naive enough to not know what we could accomplish. We were smart enough to be naive enough. So we were smart. That's the toughness. That's the Freddy Krueger. To be naive enough, hopeful, Pollyanna-ish, to not know what we could accomplish, which meant there were no limits. He didn't know what he couldn't do. And so the great story there. Started out making sales, putting cash together, getting it figured out, and he figured it out pretty well. So the first dynamic is you got to be willing to suffer. And that's your passion. Your passion will play, and that passion will infuse everything else you do. The next thing about your passion is you have to be the believer in chief. Okay, you can be the CEO, you can be the chairman of the board, but you have to be believer in chief. And like I said, I am. I am for this company. I mean, that passion to impact and improve the lives of people, that, that belief that no matter where somebody is and where they start with us, they might borrow their first couple of hundred books to get started with us, that we can help that person become a huge success. We've made hundreds and hundreds of millionaires. And I know we can do it. And I believe that. We've done it over and over again. And you have to believe first as the entrepreneur. John Gordon says, so often the difference between success and failure is belief. Belief leads to action and execution. Dale Carnegie said, believe that you will succeed and you will. Now, one of my favorite entrepreneurial stories is Estee Lauder. And she said, I have never worked a day in my life without selling. If I believe in something, I sell it and I sell it hard. As one of my all-time favorite business quotes. I'll say it again. I've never worked a day in my life without selling. If I believe in something, I sell it and I sell it hard. And here is a story of a woman in business at a time when it was a boys club. Estee Lauder was founded in uh, 1946. And she was a gamer from day one. She learned her first lessons in marketing as a child in her father's hardware store and how to sell and how to promote and above all, you know, great attention to detail. And uh, she was drawn to fashion and beauty at an early age. She learned the secrets of making lotions and skin creams from an uncle who was a European who was kind of a skin specialist. He came to stay with her family at the outbreak of World War I. So she apprenticed herself under her uncle, a great thing. And he taught her how to work with natural ingredients and help her develop these natural products. So she gets married in uh, 1946. And her and her husband, Joseph, they launch a company that had six skin treatments. They managed to scrape together. They were selling where they could, and they put together um, a $50,000 advertising budget. And none of the companies in New York at the time 
would take on their business. So they eventually invested that money into samples and they gave out at fashion shows and in mailings. And one of the things that Estee Lauder did is she would do set up tables. You know how you go to Costco and people are giving you free samples of a cookie or a pizza or this or that? She would set up those demonstration tables in Saks of Fifth Avenue. And after a while, the manager didn't like her and he was trying to push her out the door and, ah, these perfumes are no good. And one day he's, he's really getting her. He's like, get out of here, get out, get your stuff out. And so she accidentally on purpose drops one of the perfumes. And next thing you know, some ladies start coming around. Mm, I love that smell. What's that smell? What's that smell? And she starts giving out the samples and giving out the samples. Smart lady. She knew if they could experience it, they would like the fragrances and then the lotions that came with it and everything else. She became the first outside vendor in the history of Saks Fifth Avenue. And so they built up their little business. And so from 1958, where they had five people, and from 1946 to 1958, so the first 12 years, you heard the first million is the hardest. Okay, it took her 12 years to get to 850,000 in sales. Okay. Now, 15 years later, they go from 850,000 in sales with five people to 1,000 people with 100 million in sales, 100 million bucks in 1973, no less. And so they kept their passion going. They kept their belief going. They maintained a policy of emphasizing skin care and skin protection with the highest quality products. Only sold through department stores. Wouldn't work with any of the less prestigious stores. They wanted to keep their brand. In fact, there's a great biography, Estee, a success story. Highly recommend it to you. And just to give you context, right? So started in 46. By 58, they're up to 850 grand. By 73, they're up to 100 million in sales. Last year, they did 16 billion in sales with 62,000 employees. Now, she's gone now, but her legacy lives on. And what a phenomenal entrepreneur. Never say die. And another quote of hers that I absolutely love says, if you have a goal, if you want to be successful, if you really want to do it and become another Estee Lauder, you've got to work hard. You've got to stick to it, over the years she did, and you've got to believe in what you're doing. One of my all-time favorite stories, if you get a chance to read her biography, let me tell you, brilliant, brilliant woman. Lastly, you've got to transfer your belief to your team and customers. Warren Buffett says, focus on your customer and lead your people as though their lives depend on your success. Especially for me, it's like for us at Buffini Company, we're nothing if our customers' businesses don't transform. So when we help transform a customer's business, we get to stay in business. We get to grow. We get referrals. That's how it works. So for me, what I'm trying to do with my staff is to ensure that they know that our success, their own individual well-being in their careers is based on the success of our customers. That's it. Ken Blanchard said, your customers are only satisfied because their expectations are so low, because no one else is doing better. Just having satisfied customers isn't good enough anymore. If you really want a booming business, you have to create raving fans. Bottom line is, we've got to create those raving fans. And I'll leave you with one more story. Another great female entrepreneur. Some might not know her. She was very, very famous in England. Her name was Anita Roddick. And she was a person driven by her passion. Her deal was nature's way to beautiful. So it was another cosmetic company. In her case, it was a lot of lotions, natural products, built in a natural way, no animal testing, all those kinds of things with natural ingredients, and that was really her thing. So she founded um, a store called The Body Shop, and she had 4,000 pounds to start it with. In fact, um, she purchased a second store along with her husband in 1977. And some of you 
may have had to do this type of bootstrap financing where she sold 50% of the business to a local garage owner in order to get a second store. Don't worry, she later bought him out. And so, you know, this business started in Brighton. They wanted to do this thing. They had tremendous passion. They started building up their stores. They started getting it going. And then they started franchising. In fact, by 1984, the business had 138 stores, 87 of which were not located in the United Kingdom. By 1994, 89% of all business locations would be franchises. So what she was able to do is transfer her belief not only onto her staff, but then also onto franchise owners who then transferred their belief to the customers. And so the body shop was a huge success in that regard. They actually sold to L'Oreal for £652 million in 2006. So from 1976 to 2006, starting with £4,000 and selling for £652 million. That's what I love. I love entrepreneurs. I love these success stories. I am an entrepreneur. I love all you folks out there that are beating the bushes and some of you are driving today to an appointment or on to your job or your work or your business. Maybe you have another business you're starting and you're an entrepreneur. And uh, I want you to be sweet like Pollyanna and tough like Freddy Krueger, okay? I want you to be a possibility thinker. I want you to take calculated risks and I want you to make sure that your passion will play. Well, hopefully you've enjoyed the DNA of an entrepreneur. Hope you feel affirmed in your passion to be an entrepreneur. Hopefully, you know you belong. You know, you don't have to be the smartest. You don't have to be the richest. You don't have to be the anything. You just have to be the believer in chief in what you're doing, in the need it fills in the market, and that that you and your business are the best to fill it. Anyway, I hope this bolsters you up today and uh, you've got learned a lot from it. We have more coming. I'm going to delve into the DNA of a business and help you take a little bit further from being just an entrepreneur now to a business owner, like some of these folks like Estee Lauder and Anita Roddick did. Anyhow, hope you enjoyed today. I'm going to leave you with my entrepreneurial mother with an Irish blessing. Until next time, we'll see you then. May the road rise up to meet you, and may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields, and the sun shine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time. Mm-hmm.